You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode where we look back at a convention panel that I did back in 2016 about the first Doctor's era of Doctor Who. But before we do that, I wanted to talk about where I will be this weekend, and that is at Fan Expo Chicago. It is the 50th year of this convention. It's been known by a few different names. It was the Chicago Comic Con at one point. It's been Wizard World Chicago, and now it's Fan Expo Chicago. But with Fan Expo comes great names, great celebrities that they're able to pull in, such as Breck Bassinger is going to be there. The four hobbits from Lord of the Rings, Sean Astin, Elijah Wood, Dominic Monaghan, and Billy Boyd will be there. Carl Weathers will be there, Anthony Daniels, Gina Carano, John Delancey, Gates McFadden, and Jonathan Frakes from Star Trek will be there, various people from Sons of Anarchy, Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes will be there to talk about the Clerks franchise, all kinds of voice actors are going to be there. So it's a lot of really great A-list name guests are going to be there, and I think that that's really cool. They're going to have, of course, the traditional convention panels and things of that nature. But the really exciting news that just released the other day is that they will have exclusive scenes from the new season of Stargirl. When Breck Bassinger goes on stage, she's also going to be joined by Angelica Washington and Yvette Monreal, as well as Jeff Johns, to talk about the upcoming season. So that was kind of a surprise, because originally only Breck Bassinger was going to be there, and in fact the other people doesn't look like are going to be there for autographs or photographs or any of that kind of stuff, so that's pretty exciting. And yeah, I mean, there's going to be other stuff, cosplay contests and things of that nature, you know, your traditional con experience, but it's here in Chicago, it's... Not far away if you're anywhere in Illinois or Wisconsin or Indiana. You can come to the con and experience that with other geeks. And so, yeah, after the fact, I'll let you all know how it was. I was went to Wizard World once, so I'll have something to compare it to to see how the Fan Expo experience, whether it's exactly the same or different from Wizard World. But I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to maybe doing more with this con next year. There was an opportunity that almost happened with the con this year that I'm not going to talk about in case it jinxes it happening next year. But yeah, I'll definitely keep everybody posted on that. But yeah, otherwise, we're just going to go into this panel from Chicago TARDIS. It's one of those ones that's been sitting in the archives for a while that I recorded at the con, but I wanted to finally let it out there. And yeah, we'll go straight to the outro from there. But of course, as always, we're going to go to this promo from another fine podcast. 
and then we will go straight into the panel of the original, you might say, the first Doctor's era. Modern Musicology is a podcast covering topics on rock and pop ranging mostly from the 70s, 80s, and 90s with occasional excursions into the 60s and aughts and even occasionally the 2010s. Anything is fair game. Classic rock, R&B, folk, punk, prog, rap, metal, and way more with two Americans, one Brit, a ton of fun, and a healthy dose of cynicism. ourselves in the beginning of the panel, start on the far end and come back this way. Hi, I'm Nathan Laws. I am, uh, well, I have been the co-producer for a podcast that my friend Sean aptly named Sean Castic uh, for two and a half years, but uh, I'm starting my own podcast in January, and that's what I have these cards up here for. Uh, the website isn't published yet, but the email address does work, uh, but I figured this is a good opportunity to hype it uh, since I'm at a con here, so even though it's not out until January, uh, it's called The 42Cast. Um, it's about, uh, I call it the ultimate answer to fandom geekiness and everything. Uh, and uh, it's basically round-robin discussions about various topics, uh, science fiction, fantasy, pop culture type stuff. So um, I would uh, say check it out if that sounds interesting to you. My name is Bill Albert. Um, I've been a fan of Doctor Who since it started on Iowa Public Television in 1974. John Pertwee is always my doctor. Uh, he was my first and always will be. Uh, for the past couple of years, I've been writing novels, doing short films. A couple of years ago here, I did a documentary called There's Something About the Doctor. It's now available on Vimeo. We interviewed lots, we had a lot of people sit down and just ask them questions about the character, what they liked. If you go over to the freebie table, there's some postcards there, which I probably would have been smart and grabbed and brought them here, but it's just, it shows how to get it on Vimeo. Like, is there something about the doctor? What makes the doctor work? And my name is Steve Manfred. I've been a fan since I was nine years old in 1982 when uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin Public Television were both showing it, so I was getting it from both directions. And uh, an all around Doctor Who expert. I used to run a website about the North American DVD range uh, that went away last year when they took away my free web space. But, uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I still know know uh, most of that by heart. So if you have any questions about how to get the first Doctor Hero on DVD, I might be able to answer those as well. Uh, well, William Hartnell. There is a biography by his granddaughter, Jessica Carney, called Who's There? The Life and Career of William Hartnell. Just to give some idea, his life, his real life was actually just as mysterious as 
something things about the doctor. Um, he was born, when he was born, his mom was unwed. He never knew his father. And he never told a soul about that. His wife never knew, his family never knew, nobody, because he was so feared that he would be ostracized by people. Right, after, he created a fictional background for himself that he told everyone. And after he passed away, when his granddaughter was doing research for this book, she found these journals that he had written, dozens of them that he never told anybody about. And that's how they found out the truth of his family. And his, the stuff he wrote, there's a brief excerpt here. He was born on January 8th, 1908. This was a journal he wrote in 1918. So keep in mind, this is a 10-year-old who's writing this. He was writing about uh, tramps and beggars on the streets. And he said, they have given up good homes and wives to fight for king and country to come back to nothing. No work, no money, and limbs off most of them. And then when they go for work, nobody will look at them. What's the good of medals without a home and money medals don't keep you? For a 10 year old kid in 1918 talking about just how bad people on the street or veterans are being treated was really quite a, quite a step. Would they be great war veterans? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. War I did that yeah. year. He also appeared in 76 films before taking on the role of the doctor which was, he had a very successful and well-respected career. Deciding that he was gonna take a step back from doing films to doing a TV series, got a lot of people's attention, and in some ways, it got a lot of respect for the series. That you're able to take this person who has a very successful career in films and put him on television. And you have to re well, realize- his first television, though. Well, it was first series, his first. What about, this, what about the, the Army game? Yeah, he had, he had another TV before. Yeah, yeah. but those that, that might was, have been But at this was with, with yeah. doing Doctor Who, he was doing forty-eight episodes a year, so it brought, there was no close other, to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he did almost as many as Tom Baker did in half the time. Yeah, in, in terms of long, in terms of running time, where you're the star on the credits, uh, he's in second place to this day. Tom Baker mm -hmm. only beat him by doing seven years. Um, at a not as much rate. Yeah, they were doing between 39 and 45 episodes a year mm -hmm. at the, in, the, the, in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And the, I think the, the longest season it was his last, that was, yeah. was, was mm -hmm. the third the, uh, at 45. So there was no, it was not an easy job for no, somebody at 55. <laughs> by then he would have been 58. Yeah. Well, when well, he that's when he started, but yeah, 58 yeah. season Oh, three. by the end. Right, yeah. 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 Uh -huh. So yeah, I would definitely recommend this yeah. just, he deserves a lot more credit than he gets. Yeah, and I think that's a good tee up to the discussion of this panel because the, the quote that I hear all the time that just annoys me to no end is, well, without Patrick Troughton, we wouldn't have Doctor Who today. Well, without William Hartnell, you wouldn't have the show that we have today. I mean, that's kind of a ridiculous uh -huh. statement, you know? Uh -huh. So I, I feel like a lot of people they go back and they view an unearthly child. They, they form an opinion about the first doctor, and then they say, I'm not watching the first doctor anymore. I can't stand him. <laughs> and here he is in effigy. Our fourth panelist is right? And our fifth. Yes. Hello, Barbara. One guess who my favorite companion is. <laughs> it's not a bad choice. 
Um, but uh, perhaps we should just, allow. Uh, yeah. Introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Ms. Makepeace, and I'm here to talk about the first doctor. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people think that some of the elements that Troughton brought to it, he brought sort of fresh. Like, everyone points to humor. But if you watch the Hartnell era, you see that William Hartnell had a lot of humor. I mean, just watch the Romans, watch the Time Meddler, listen to the audio of the Myth Makers, any of those stories. He is having a blast. You know, he is, is being uh, uh, funny and whimsical and all of the kinds of elements that people now consider intrinsic to Doctor Who. A lot of people attribute to Patrick Troughton bringing to the role, which Troughton was more of that and more often. But, you know, Hartnell is the one who established that as part of the series way back when. And so, yeah, I think that Hartnell does not get the credit that he deserves on Doctor Who at all. Well, I... Not sure. He did, which, which, I mean, Trotton hasn't had yet a full documentary, docudrama movie made about <laughs> taking the, uh, taking the yeah. stage. I mean, I think at Adventure in Space and Time at the 50th anniversary, did quite a lot to redress that. Before then, maybe you, you've got a point. But uh, that, that film, if you haven't seen it, you should. Uh, it was a wonderful look at the at, at cross-sectional look at, at uh, what it was like. And it's most, it's about 80, 85% accurate. There, there are some liberties taken, some people left out, like uh, David Whitaker's his name is not mentioned once. He was the original story editor. When they gloss over John Wiles completely and kind of yeah. merge in that whole ending of his career. It becomes a voice, it becomes Mark Gatiss's voice on the, right. on the PA system. Um, yeah, yeah they, they gloss over that. And was the other one, other change that it was very impactful on Hartnell's life that I disagreed with in the film was that they tell you up front, Heather Hartnell, when she's talking to Verity Lambert, uh, says that um, their doctor has diagnosed him with arteriosclerosis. While that was eventually true, it wasn't true at the time. No. He was, it was undiagnosed. He knew there was something wrong, but they didn't have a diagnosis for years after he left the part. Yeah. So personally, I, I would find that a lot more frightening that if... Uh, there's something wrong with me. I can't remember my lines anymore, and I and the doctors don't know what it is. What killed him? A stroke? It was, it was he had cerebrovascular disease was added to that after he left yeah, the show. Yeah, which that's something like a complication had, of the first. Had a, right. had a series of strokes and died in 1975. Yeah. Any questions? Anything offhand that you or. Um, Maybe Nissa could show off our uh, the the, the uh, marionette here. This yeah, is very impressive. Actually, and not only do I have a marionette, I actually have a little TARDIS oh, brilliant. backdrop for brilliant. him. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> See, and, excellent. Uh, yep. It's especially because the original set had one of the, had one or two of these. And it, it was it was pretty much yeah just a, a, a backdrop right. yeah so yeah <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this I commissioned from a local artist in the city I live in who just, he's unfortunately not online, um, but uh, he'll, he just makes anything you want and I'm like, can you make a first doctor? He's like, I've, I've never seen that, but give me pictures yeah. and from pictures and oh. I, uh, I found some, some fabric and, and he did it and so here he is with his spyglass and his cane and his I, I would specify you gotta have the little the rings yeah, and everything, yeah, yeah. And, he, and he just and he did it so beautifully. It just just captured him oh, wonderfully. 
And uh, this, uh, someone made on Spoonflower. Um, this is, if you don't know, that's a website that um, designers design fabric and you can just custom print it off however much you want to order. And um, someone did a TARDIS background and I just thought, hmm, you know, and then so here it is. <laughs> Which, yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah, so. There we are, because there's not a lot of First Doctor merchandise out there. It's yeah. not one of the best known ears of the show, but I love it the best. So uh, yeah, I, 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 I took it into my own hands. I got to make myself some merchandise. So <laughs> here, here, well, it, here there, he is. There's a question. What is it about the First Doctor era that you love the best? I just think maybe, I, th I think the characters and the story, it's, it's very character driven and um, you know, in the beginning of the show, it wasn't, it wasn't the Doctor was the star, it was an ensemble, yep. you know, very much. So there's, there's equal weight given to all the characters. They all have their chance to save the day in certain episodes, and they all have their moments to shine and strengths. And I just, I love the family feeling that it sure. had that these characters, they're this family on a journey together. And Particularly in those first two years, which are the two years we mostly have. The yeah. third year, mm -hmm. things have changed quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's a great point, because, I mean, one of the things that I really like about it is that the companions sometimes have the moral authority. Sometimes oh, the companions yeah. are right oh, and the yeah. doctor is oh, wrong. Yeah. Exactly. And you look at something like the Aztecs with the arguments that the doctor and Barbara have with each other, it is just wonderful to watch because then, you know, Doctor Who from you know, after Heart, the Hartnell era, the Doctor is always right. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the do as far as anything that has to do with morality or anything of that nature, you know, the Doctor is always going to be the one that's right. And he has sidekicks. Mm -hmm. In that first Doctor's era, mm -hmm. you know, they're all, they're more or less equals. And yeah. from, a, from a storytelling point of view, I, I like that too. And that's one of my complaints about the new series is so many of them, they all get along so well. It, it kind of takes away some of the drama to have them happy and fun and having a good time. But if you go back and watch Edge of Destruction, where you've got Ian <laughs> and the Doctor yes. ready, I mean, Susan's attacking with scissors. They're ready to go to each other's throats at this. And yeah, that I, is I, straight up one of the most terrifying episodes yeah. I ever watched in my entire life. This is supposed to be a children's series. And they are hitting levels that yeah. they can't even come close to today. Yeah. I th and I'm hoping to ask Peter Purvis about that later at the end of the massacre. Oh. When he yeah. just tears into the mm -hmm. doctor about letting her die and it's all this. Right. It's, it's much more interesting than some of the stuff we get today. Yes. Yeah. One of the things that kind of bugged me about the Hartnell era is he sort of captured Ian and Barbara and <laughs> let them leave. <laughs> now, he, could he legitimately not control what the TARDIS No, he yeah. couldn't. He had no yeah. control of the TARDIS and couldn't steer anywhere, which is what made that, those, that era so exciting and so... You know, it, it raised the stakes because they couldn't just go anywhere they wanted anytime they wanted. Right. They were at the right. mercy of wherever they landed. There, so. there, there's a pretty strong fan theory that even though it's never stated in the series, that until the, the Time Lords capture the TARDIS and start using it, remote controlling it, so they have to fix it basically to control it, that that's when the Doctor seems to be able to, when yeah. he really wants to, to get where he needs to be. Yeah. That before that era, the Doctor, the TARDIS was broken so badly, the Doctor yeah, couldn't really steer in, it. In the whole of the Hartnell and Trotten eras, mm -hmm. there's only one occasion where he aims for a place and they get there, and that's why he steals the monk's directional unit, and it burns out on the, on the first go when they're trying to get back to Planet Kemble and the Dots Master Plan. Was the monk the master? No. 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 He, he no. was not an incarnation of the master? No. 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 
No, there's a theory that the, <laughs> that's the that's war chief at the end of at the end of the war games in the Troughton era might have been the first. But you also have it's certainly it's a prototype in the writing. Certainly, yeah. certainly the expanded universe has has said that they're all distinct characters: war chief, monk, master. But yeah, there there there's been the theory that the war chief and the master. There's a so very good theory that I like that from unearthly child to the end of the chase, the show is really about Ian and Barbara. Yes. Yeah. Oh no, I agree. It, it very much is. And I like it even in the Daleks, where the Doctor just flat out lies to them because he right. wants to go down there. He tells, "This is broken. We can't go anywhere." Yeah. And he's just flat out lying. I liken the first Doctor to Doctor Smith in Lost in Space. <laughs> Because he's yeah. very much, he's more of that sort of, rather than a protagonist, he is almost the foil for the actual heroes, which are Ian and Barbara. And he's the one that's getting them into trouble a lot of the times, yeah. rather than being the one offering the solution. Yeah. And that's one of the really great parts of the first Doctor era, is the Doctor, he has real character growth. I mean, he starts off as a not terribly moral, likable character, but over time, as he interacts with... Ian and Barbara, and they all have to learn to live together. He grows and changes and learns. I mean, oh, yeah. there's a give was and take from really each other. Was he murder that caveman? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, you know, and again, it's like, God, this is such a darker character well, well, and this of, is, of the lead character. Well, and this is the thing. I hear all the time about people who are like, oh, I, I like the new series, and I'm going to go back. And then they watch An Earthly Child. They're like, oh, this is awful. I'm never watching this again. And... And, and that's the thing is you have to watch the Hartnell era for multiple stories yeah. because there actually is what we would call character arcs now going on. David Whitaker was one of the most phenomenal storytellers I think ever to work on the show. Oh, yes. And as script editor, he made sure that all these things linked together and there was a through line Every going on. Every serial ended with a with a link into the next one. There wasn't, and it's difficult to, mm-hmm. for the expanded universe people to, to fit stories in gaps because there aren't any. Mm-hmm. Uh, Line, you know, current doctor loses the ability to control the TARDIS, has unwilling companions with them for a season or so. Do you think that type of storyline would work again? It could. I, 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 don't, I don't see a reason why it couldn't work again. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe that's, you know, with Chris Chibnall taking over and new producers like to, always like to ring changes. Maybe that's something he wants to give a try. You never know. You look at however, there's a lot of science fiction series that are like that, you know, where we're lost, we can't go where we want to go. You know, you look at Star Trek Voyager, Battlestar Galactica, they all kind of like toy with that same idea of we're just kind of aimlessly wandering. So it's still something that people like, and if it's done well, it will be interesting. Mm-hmm. But you've had your hand up for a while. One of the differences with... No, Okay. You mentioned that some people that it does take longer to get the heart than it does some of the other doctors. I've noticed that's kind of happened again with Peter Capaldi's doctor, with which in some ways had, does harken back to the heart mm-hmm. here, and then we have an older doctor who doesn't always get along with his companion in the early yeah. going, and that there are many stories that do link pretty closely together. And at the same time, it's even though. Critics seem to be happier with the show with, say, the later Van Smith seasons. It doesn't seem as popular with the mainstream because uh, a bunch of people just gave up after a few episodes and didn't get to see just how much that character evolves. The ratings of Capaldi's first season were steady. The second season, it did drop considerably, but that's everyone seems to be. The consensus seems to be that was more of a scheduling issue. Oh yes. Than, than the it was. first four weeks were up against uh, live X Factor episodes. They were having to put it on much later than they wanted to right. because it's strictly come dancing. Yeah. So I, I'll be interested to see if 
what happens when, uh, after this gap when we get back, how, plus the Christmas special, how, how we do again in the, in the yeah. third year. Yes. The thing I absolutely loved about the Hartnell era were what I call the pure historical episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Aztecs, yes. the Romans, yes. the gunfighters, yeah. where there is no supernatural mm -hmm. or paranormal involvement except the doctor himself. Yes. Right. And I wish they would bring that back. Yeah. The problem is with how the doctor has changed as a character, it's almost impossible to do that because he's almost a god with magical abilities anymore where he can just do anything that he wants to do against these humongous alien, you know, super technological threats. So it almost seems like a, a threat in a historical time scale wouldn't even be, you know, dramatic enough for what they're trying to do. But now, now, however, that, uh, spoiler, that Gallifrey's back, um, did someone gasp? <laughs> um, maybe he's maybe he's got to think. Okay, maybe I've got to start just just in case. Maybe I should start obeying rules again. And you could maybe do a pure historical where he doesn't. He feels like he shouldn't go, you know, go for his vast great knowledge or anything, and but should try and play by the rules of the historical time. And so I, I wonder if if a pure historical could work again if he's keeping a, a limit on himself. And at the same time, the pure historical could be, say, investigating an historical mystery, something maybe that nobody, you know, there's a debate about how, how an event went one way or the other, or some new research has come to light, and you could really d uh, drill deep into something like that. There's an excellent novel called The Witch Hunters, where yeah. it goes back to Salem, Massachusetts, during the height of the witch persecution. Right. So the expanded universe has taken these pure historical episodes and made more of them. Oh yeah, Big Finish yeah. has done yeah, them yeah, as well. Still yeah, still yeah. Still yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, I think the issue with like historical episodes now, so when I was watching them, I had issues because it was Britain's version. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And each country has a different history like, yeah. take on it. And now that it's such a global show, I think that would be one of the biggest issues. Doing yeah, there are minefields yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, if it's handled the right way, I still think it could yeah. be done. I, I mean, but, but the thing is, a lot of times people attribute, like, let's take the Crusades. You know, there is definitely the issue of actors in blackface in the Crusades, which is something that would definitely not fly today. But when you look at how those characters are depicted, I mean, Saladin comes off way better than King Richard, who's oh, yeah. like a petulant child. Yeah. Uh, and I was kind of surprised that, you know, this is, you know, British writers writing for this, and they're basically like, oh no, these guys were actually way better yeah. <laughs> for the most part. I mean, L.A. Keir was a bad guy, but, you know. Saladin and Safadin were actually, you know, a lot. Yeah, they're, they're the smarter uh, <laughs> guys, and they're the ones who are being invaded. So, right. yeah. 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 I mean, a, a pure historical could theoretically still be done. It's just, it would take a lot of research. And I think also to set up that world in the old, you know, in the classic series, it, there were multi-part serials, so you had a couple mm. of weeks and, and more time to kind of set up that, explain that history without it being, you know, here, I'm going to stand here and give you all this exposition historical background, whereas nowadays it's, it's like a 45-minute episode, so that's harder 
to, to do. That's another great point, though, that I wanted to bring up is that the world building is the best that it ever gets in the Hartnell era. When they actually have a chance to sort of explore their surroundings and figure out how things work. Because even by the time they're getting into the color stories, you know, in the later, even though the, you know, they might still have four or six episodes, a lot of times you're presented with a lot of facts right up front. Or you see a lot of things that they're not seeing. So you, you, you kind of establish things. Maybe one of the best examples of that is the first da- Dalek story. Yes. Okay, we come out, it, we don't just open with dogs. No, first we're in a petrified jungle. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's a frozen creature there and a mysterious knock on the door. Then, then we get leave, and then we go into the metal city mm-hmm. with all the, these, these corridors and then we find out, oh, it's contaminated with radiation everywhere. We're dying. <laughs> Great. And then the Daleks turn up. And yeah, and, and, those, and plus the wonderful production design from Raymond yeah. Cusick. The, mm-hmm. Gorgeous painted backdrops that yeah, that yeah. Raymond Cusick uh, and Barry Newberry really yeah. just the production design. I mean, both on the historical stories and the and the alien worlds. I mean, the creativity of the people involved in this is just amazing. I mean, these were made on tiny, tiny little sets, probably about the size of this room and less less height. I mean, so I mean, just just the care and the care and the research they put into it. I mean, the Aztecs particularly. I mean, so many things that's like kind of general. Central American, but I mean everything in Essex is really mm-hmm. specifically Aztec. I mean they really, really just it it's beautiful. I mean and I mean a lot of people say, oh, you know, the sets wobbled and all that stuff, but it's like the point is though, it's like we even today we know, even with all the CGI, we know it's pretend. It's like but that they created this this world for us and this, these little sets to give us the sto- these stories. It's, it's much more like light watching theater. Yeah. Yes. If you've got yeah. a theater fan, yeah. then you're going to have a much better chance of winning them over to a heart, the heart mm-hmm. uh, than you would. I've seen two hands up here. Which one do we want? Uh, okay, I guess I'm going back to this, trying to do something <coughs> historical thing. Are you running the risk that either he, he, the situation is just so trivial it will not change the timeline, or does the doctor, does the episode wind up having an impact? Well, that's well, another thing, time. too. Well, you can sort of invert that and say it doesn't have to be about the impact on history. It can be about thing. the yeah, personal and, impact exactly. to the yeah. doctor you and know, his in companions. In the old days, not every single Doctor Who story was, it decides the fate of the galaxy or the world or anything. It right. was just, we're in this situation, and how right. do we get right. out of it? And how does it personally yes. impact us yeah. and the people we meet? Well, let's just see Jacobite-era Scotland and meet some of the people. Right. Mm-hmm. See the issues of the time. What I think was um, a weakness of the Hartnell era were his fantasy and space opera episodes, like the Sensorites and the web planet. Well, here's the interesting thing here. If you read the audience research reports that were being done, because, you know, the BBC would poll people and, you know, try and figure out what people thought. At the time, those were the most exciting episodes. Those were the ones that everyone really enjoyed. I agree with you now in hindsight that the historicals age better because, yeah, they're historical, and so they're going to look old-timey, you know, <laughs> yeah. no matter what era you're looking at right. it at, and things like the Sensorites date. They don't, they don't date the way the uh, future yeah. imagination can. Although I, uh, I, like, I quite like the Sensorites myself. Web Planet, yeah, that's in my bottom five list. <laughs> well, I think the Web Planet's problem is really just the technology of the kind of makeup yeah, that they could come up with. I mean, the story itself is really one of the more ambitious sci-fi stories 
Doctor right. Who's ever done. I mean, yeah. there's no humanoid aliens in this. They're it's all the only time that's ever insects. happened. There, it's just, I mean, in this world they created. I mean, it's just once again beautiful sets, beautiful design. I mean, it's it's. it's, it's I, see, I'll defend the Web Planet because even though I don't think it's the best story they ever did, I don't think it deserves the hatred that it gets oh, no. in most circles. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, yeah. But I mean, but for me, the for costumes me, costumes are a little silly. But I mean, the story is actually really great. And if you can just look past that, I mean, it's, it's well, a lot of fun. Key of uh, Martinius. <laughs> the, the keys of Martinius. <laughs> Martinius. Another one where the reach exceeded their grasp, but it's it, at least it's not. It, uh, it changes every twenty. Well, right, exactly. Right. The, 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 there's a, more of a pace to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah and there's, there's just so much variety. Uh, right, because usually yeah. in sci-fi, like one city represents an entire planet, and here you yeah, get to go yeah. to all sorts of different places, yeah. and you see that there's actually a lot of different cultures on this mm-hmm. planet, and I, I, I like love that. that. Yeah. Talking about how the stories that are least regarded today, back then, are most regarded today. That's kind of happening now with Capaldi again. The audience appreciation index they take mm-hmm. of the episodes, Heaven Sent was one of the lowest rated last season on that list. Mm-hmm. Which uh, they, the only one that did worse was the found footage episode, Sleep No More. Yeah, and I think one Those of the times. one of the other things that I like about the Hartnell and Troutman years, they were able to do things that. In effect, you couldn't do today. I believe it's the time meddler where there's like a 15-minute sequence where there's absolutely no dialogue at all. It's just people moving, doing things. They don't say anything. They don't talk to each other. It's not time meddler, but that is it. I can't remember. But but you know, there is that sequence where nobody says anything, and I don't think you could get away with that today. I think they're too afraid people at home would be turning it off. Nothing's going on here. They're just walking around and moving things. Yeah, you can do that. There are shows that they've made that the gimmick where nobody can hear, see, or that that was an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where Uh nobody could speak through the whole thing. That was that worked really well. Uh Yeah. one of the things that people talk about nowadays, kind of sort of along those lines, is uh, you know whenever you hear in the DVD commentaries, they're they're always talking about the incidental music, and like nowadays it's almost like back to back. You watch a TV show and it's like it's constant background music yeah. through the whole thing. And in you know in these older '60s you know Doctor Who episodes, it's just used when it's needed, you know, just to to make a point or to you know cover yeah. over like a scene where there might not be any dialogue for a while. They might have a little it bit had of music to, be because to the, they, send they, a tone. they didn't have. The editing was so crude at the time on videotape that they didn't have the ability to do a, a dub afterwards. Right. All sounds on the Hartnell, almost all sounds on the Hartnell episodes are, were played in live in, into the studio while they, they were recording it. Um, the only exception being film sequences, which there weren't that many of in the Hartnell era uh, when they went on location. So yeah, everyone on the studio floor could hear the TARDIS humming while they're in the TARDIS, or unlike today, where they're just doing the scene and then the homes put in afterwards, or, or the Dalek voices or the gun effects, all that live sounds, mm-hmm. because it had to be. There was no way to do it afterwards. Yes. Now, the gun effects, like the Dalek stick guns in the Hartnell era, I always thought were strange, because mm-hmm. it yeah. was a gas that was shooting out. Well, no, that's, that's the movies. The Cushing, that's, that's the Cushing this. movies. This, 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 uh, this T-shirt is a Peter Cushing second film. Poster. Yeah, the Hartnell era was where they just like they fl- kind of flapped, yes. and then everything went negative. There was no right. gas. Yeah. Yeah. They, they couldn't put on film like a laser beam. No, right, impossible. They, they, the first time you ever see a laser beam is in 
day of the dog. In the, it's in the Troughton story, the moon base, where they did it as a stop motion oh. animation on film sequences uh, of the Cybermen getting out of Bazooka. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, they didn't. You don't start seeing electronic laser effects until the Tom Baker era. Another one that always gets people going, and it, I have to admit, it took me a long time to really love this episode, the gunfighters. <laughs> I used to absolutely hate that with a passion, but after years and years going back and watching it and thinking, this is freaking hilarious. I absolutely it's Stockholm love it Syndrome. Now. Yeah. How, how many people like the gunfighters? I actually do. How many people hate it? Oh, oh I yeah. hate the song. The song is yeah. the last. That, 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 that was the trouble. <laughs> it's too much. It would be yeah, better if the song over wasn't and there. Over and over and over. <laughs> yeah, but I still, I've never, ever, ever liked westerns. Yeah. So that that's three strikes against you right there. Yeah. Donald Cotton was one of the funniest people that ever wrote for the show, and it's a real shame that the Myth Makers is lost because mm -hmm. if you listen to that audio for the Myth Makers. I mean, irreverent, uh, hilarious. I mean, it is it is one of the funniest things that Doctor Who has ever done. In the target novelization, the myth makers is told from the perspective of one of the ancient Greek poets. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I can't remember. Homer. It's Homer. Yeah. I yeah, it's completely different in There's the novelization. There's some really bad jokes in there, too. Like <laughs> right. the, the, the episode three cliffhanger ends on way the worst joke in all of Doctor Who, where it's... Yeah. Cassandra, don't they're bringing in the, the Trojan horse. horse yeah. and Cassandra's going, the horse. woe to Troy, <laughs> woe to the Trojans, and then Paris, I think it says. I think it's a little too late to say woe to the horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. They, they do hold up well on just the audio adventure. That one does, the, the, yeah. Like some of them, the... And I can imagine the, it, well, we're going to put you in the horse. Doctor. Yeah, it is funny how the doctor keeps trying to come up with plans that will avoid go, having it going into the horse. But they're all just, they're worse, like the flying machines he wants to build. So he wants to set, make basic little glider things and shoot people over the walls. <laughs> right, on a, on a giant slingshot, basically. Yeah. And then Agamemnon says, all right, you're first. <laughs> uh, maybe that's not such a good idea. <laughs> Uh, do we want to talk about favorite companions? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I would say Barbara Wright, not just because she's at the table, <laughs> but because she is exactly everything you said earlier. Uh, the, you know, the, the sensible one, who, the one he up and maybe uh, maybe Clara ties this now, but uh, she's the one who could argue with the doctor toe to toe on a moral issue and usually win. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, she'll she'll definitely she won't take any crap. Yeah, out. right. It's another good drama point of. I suppose Donna did it a little bit too, but uh, but Barbara more more than any other. Well, and she doesn't win in Aztecs, but she will go to toe to toe with him. Well, and here's the thing. Here's the awesome thing about the Aztecs. In any other story. The idea of someone posing as a god to bamboozle a bunch of people, yeah. that would be the most awful thing, you know, like that would be something that we're all against, you know. Yeah. But Barbara, and you sort of see, she's trying to save lives. She, you know, she sees this thing that, you know, thousands of people sacrificed under see, the Aztecs, and she's trying, you know, so there's this really neat yeah. idea that both, neither the doctor nor Barbara is right, because, I mean, you have the point of view of, well, we can't change this culture, but this that, is who they are, and this is and yes. Barbara about saving the lives. One, the one caveat I have about the Aztecs, though, is how it's, it's, it's a view of history, as, as, as you had said earlier, uh, Brit the way the British saw it in 1964. 
uh, the true history of what really killed off the Aztecs was all the smallpox mm -hmm. that the Spanish brought over. Ninety percent of them killed over from that, and the, the, sac the additional sacrifices they tried to make the gods stop it. Uh, just exactly, you know, was like icing on the cake. Well, 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 opinion was that if they yeah. weren't practicing sacrifice, that the Spanish would have gotten along with the Aztecs, which I don't think that would have worked either. But so that's it all. That 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 uh, the, it all falls down in the face of the real history. There, that's, that, there's a case where, if, for someone who knows, who, who has learned some, at least some of the real history, mm -hmm. um, can it's, it's also got one of my favorite. The comic moments of Hartnell was sharing cocoa with a woman and yes. getting married. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> She's nearly ready to spit up the cocoa. Yeah. <laughs> Those little good things, like you talked about, that everybody thinks are trouting on. That right. look on his face where he realizes, <sighs> oh, I just engaged, got myself engaged. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, you have been sitting. Yeah. But like uh, particularly with the first doctor as much as I love it, like it's very problematic and like so I, I tend to like point it out to others, but like mm -hmm. how like so that it is acknowledged, but like how do you all sort of like It is definitely that? an educational opportunity to point these things <laughs> out. And there are usually articles you can find online that will tell you all the, the things that they've got wrong here or are not emphasizing enough. Or, but it's also educational. This is what the way history was taught at that not that long ago, and it's useful for people today who, who learned it the right way the first time to realize that it was taught the wrong way the, the last time. <laughs> or, and, or, yeah, in, or actually, uh, I have to say, I'm I'm a major history nerd, and a lot of the the early historicals and stuff. I mean, honestly, they're not much different from what history is taught today. And I have to say, a lot of those are a lot more fair and balanced in their look at, at, at cultures and peoples than, than, than even a lot of stories you see today. I mean, honestly, I mean, there, there's a couple of instances of kind of, of there's, there's a few lines that are questionable here and there, but honestly, the television landscape today isn't that much different. I'm saying, well, yeah, I'm <laughs> I mean, look at Hollywood so, I mean, movies. Any Hollywood movie, any Hollywood right. TV show, you have to keep, yes. you always have to look yes. at that with a critical eye. And um, I think, you know, as, as long as you do that, if with all the media you consume, something this, this, I mean, this particular show isn't really that much worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you consider next year a movie's coming out with Matt Damon building the Great Wall of China, and, you know, <laughs> history is just being thrown out the window all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Not that that isn't, like, a good question, but that is, but I was actually thinking more like, you know, racism, sexism, mm. that type of problem. No. Yeah. So. Actually, oh, well, I have found the Hartnell era, for me, as a feminist coming in and seeing it, was kind of amazing, because... I mean, in, you know, I mean, nowadays, you know, Stephen Moffat famously said that, you know, an ideal TARDIS team should be the doctor with one young female companion. And for me, I mean, as much, I, I started with the new series. I love, you know, I love Amy and Rose and Clara. But, you know, I mean, for me, I'd always felt like problematic that, you know, it's always, the doctor is always male and he was the leader and the companion is, is, the, is the sidekick. And that, that always felt really kind of sexist to me as much as I love the characters and the stories. But... Coming into Classic Who and seeing, you know, the first Doctor with Ian and Barbara and Susan, it was so different because Ian and Barbara, I mean, they're grown-ups, and Ian is 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 a man. He's a he's a you know the handsome, you know, leading man who in any other show would be. 
the lead, but you know, he's he's the companion as well, you know, and and so so much of the time I, you know, on Doctor Who, I mean, there was a line in the in one of the new about. You know, the doctor says, how Clara's my carer, she cares about things, so I don't have to. And, yeah. you know, that just to me felt like, like it's women's job to care and civilize men and things like that. But with the Hartnell era, it's like, when the doctor's going to kill a caveman with a rock, it's Ian that stops him and says, no, killing is wrong. Because, and that to me meant so much that it was Ian that did that. Because that caring and nonviolence are not woman things, they're human things. And that, so to have, you know, to have... Ian and Barbara there, and the doctor relates to them pretty much the same way. It's not, you know, he's not, he's not dismissing his companions because they're women. He's dismissing them because they're humans, and he's a xenophobic, xenophobic time lord. And, and it's, 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 you know, it's the, and, you know, the, di and the dynamic, and he's eventually, he has to respect them both because, you know, their, their point of view is valid, all of them, because they're, di and, you know, I mean, just, the dynamic is it's it's just it's different because they're all adults who come to work together and that that to me just feels so much better kind yeah, of uh, I mean you know and then those first three stories were, were very were very wisely grouped together in one box set called the beginning because mm -hmm. you start with all that stuff going on and then event you and go through the dog story and then the edge of destruction that really comes to a head because they're all confined in the TARDIS together. Mm -hmm. And all comes around, and Barbara's the one who solves yeah. the plot mm -hmm. to the to the doctor's amazement, and mm -hmm. and then he and he has that wonderful long apology to her mm -hmm. towards the end. Yeah. What? Uh, oh, sorry. So we learn about ourselves. Is that what he's? Uh, yeah. As, as we learn about each other, so we learn about ourselves. But um, yeah, one of the quotes that I heard recently that just annoyed me to no end was that Sarah Jane was the first strong female companion. Oh. And that, Who said that? That, that was something that someone related to me on Facebook that they had just oh. heard on a podcast. Totally said by people who had never seen anything before Sarah Jane. Right, because, I mean, Barbara is Barbara one of the strongest female characters that's ever been on the show. She's the first character to say a line in the series. Yeah. Yeah. The first scripted line is Barbara's when she says, wait here, Susan, please And, and, and here's the thing, and here's the difference. In 72, they talk a lot about feminism yeah. while not being very feminist. Yes. Whereas in the 60s, you get, even, you get Barbara, you get Sarah Kingdom, uh, in, in the Trout area, you get Zoe. These are all characters who just go about being strong and female and don't feel the need to constantly point out, oh, by the way, I'm strong and female because I'm a feminist. You know, so I, I like that a lot better because it seems to me to be a lot more honest and real than, you know, Sarah Jane who has to constantly point out, by the way, I'm a feminist. You know, Doctor, I'm a feminist. Uh, Harry, I'm Vicky a feminist. I in, in that <laughs> list. Uh, uh, Vicky is, is no, by no, she, she's a very underrated companion we mm -hmm. mentioned yet. I, I just love how this... One of the things I like, um, Space Museum is a story that doesn't get a lot of uh, love, but I, I've always quite liked it. I love the time puzzle in it, but I also love how it's kind of the first time, it, it, the, the series would do this a lot later on, but it's kind of the first time they land in a place where there's an oppression regime going on, and Vicky, in particular, <laughs> is the one who overthrows it by, yep. by fomenting the, re the rebellion and you know, breaking into the armory by, by you know, hacking their computer. And... Uh, and letting the rebels get all the guns, and you know she's the one who solves that problem, uh, just using her own uh, skills that she knows uh, herself. Without and kind of goes off and while Barbara and Ian are arguing about can't we change the future? And the doctor's been captured. She just gets on with saving everybody. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah. One of the, regarding the companion to the Hartnell era, one of the things I thought was unfortunate was the way they portrayed Susan. Yeah. Uh, see, here's the thing. Like, Susan was supposed to be a child, though. I mean, her character right. is stated to be 15 years old. So uh, I'm, I'm here's kind of. Here's the question, though: Is she a time lady? Is she his biological offspring? Yes. Uh, well, let's not get into this. <laughs> no, no, let's not get into this because, yeah, yeah no. I mean, it's, I mean the, the way the writing was intended, that she was supposed right. to be an actual teenager. However, right. however, an actual chronological old, she might have been. Right, her, there's her been latter-day revisionism was, over and over again. I, it it yeah, sort of detracts I from mean, the heart yeah, era I mean, is what we're talking about. I don't even know what uh, you did with it, but I mean, the writers intended it that she was a child. She was supposed to be for the children in the audience to relate to. Originally, it was supposed to be aimed at children and families to watch at tea time after school to be educational. So, I mean, Susan was very much intended to be a child. But getting to the point of how Susan was portrayed, see, that's the interesting thing, because I find that everyone falls into either the Susan camp or the Vicky camp. I'm firmly in the Susan camp. Uh, I find Vicky annoying. I think that, uh, but now that I know that they intended her to be much younger, they never say on screen how old Vicky is, but I've since found out that they intended for her to be like 14 years old. And then a lot of her actions make sense, but Maureen O'Brien doesn't look 14 at all. She looks like she's 20, you know, whereas Carolyn Ford has that sort of elfin look that actually she, even though she was 23, she looked like she was 15. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that Susan actually worked as acting sort of childlike and whatnot. Um, you know, a lot of her weirder moments, like in The Edge of Destruction, I, I always attribute her actions in Edge of Destruction to her telepathic abilities starting to yeah. manifest and with everyone yeah. uncertain and yeah. scared and the TARDIS trying to warn her, that's, or warn them, that's why she acts yeah. out oh, yeah. like that. Um, but, you know, but that's the thing. The writers never really capitalized on that yeah. aspect of her. They threw it in the censorites, and then they never really dealt with yeah. it. It was one of the things that was in her initial character outline, but then after the end, it was very much there. She's, very, very, she's played very differently in the pilot episode, the one that, never, the one that mm -hmm. didn't air originally. And amongst uh, Sidney Newman's many notes, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, uh, I should fire you, but I'm not going to um, uh, One of the things he's atoned Susan way the hell down, I want her to be the, the kid that gets chased and gets into trouble and needs the others to go save her. Mm -hmm. uh, so that all got dialed back, and to much to Caroline Ford's annoyance, yeah. she had been sold on the part from the original outline with the way she was playing it to start with, and then... Uh, only remnants of it remained in the later story, Sensorites being one of them. And they had to write in the excuse of why she isn't used, because she was supposed to have the tele telepathy all the time, originally. Mm -hmm. And they, they forgot to, uh, either Peter R. Newman didn't get the memo or didn't notice that she's not supposed to be telepathic. So they threw lines in about how it's only because of all the telepathy going on on the sense sphere that it's boosted her power. And she's got it in this story, but once we leave, it, it'll be gone again. Well, that's another interesting point is how many times the series Bible that they had in the very beginning changed because the doctor changed from being a 650-year-old alien to being a 65-year-old man. And if you look at the different time periods of when the writers were getting the guidelines at David Whitaker and how many well, times he, David Whitaker was revising them, and that's why in that original pilot, the doctor says that, or Susan says they're from the 49th century, because yeah. at that point, the reality of the series was that the doctor was just a guy, a well, normal human. I think human he was always meant to be. Far future. He was all, I, I think the character outlines, he was always going to be centuries old, but the, as far as casting guidelines, you have to see what he looks like 
when you go out to the casting agency, because the casting agency isn't going to go find, oh, there's a 650-year-old actor. Yeah. No, no, they didn't get it. Tell them what they, you know, well, what if, the If you actually read for. the guidelines, though, you see that they actually say a 65-year-old man from the future, then that was a change from the original ones that said 650 years old alien. But they went back to old again. Uh, right, but they went back, yeah, I mean, they went back again as a series. Well, that's why there's so much confusion in those early stories where the Doctor doesn't, you know, they just treat him like he's just any old guy, you know. He only uh, has one heart. Right. There's a few references to, uh, like, introductions, one of them, where Ian's listing his heart's beating, they only hear one. So there, there is a fan theory that goes he didn't get the second tart until after he regenerated the first time, which fed into the whole half-human business from the TV movie. But because um, the first time that he's identified to have two hearts isn't, isn't until the third Doctor in Spirit in Space. Yeah, yeah cause Although when were, yeah, when there is a hint of a weird medical diagnosis on him in the wheel in space in Charlie's Oh, yeah. they, they don't go into any detail. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, we finish up? Sir yeah. Kingdom. <laughs> Yeah, and the thing is, they, none of them get enough time, really. I mean, Katarina, they were like, oh, but maybe a historical companion from a time pre-technology wouldn't work. Then, of course, Jamie gets cast next year. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> well, see, that, this is, a, this is a, an, ex- ex- uh, an example of what happened when the production team changed, because uh, mm-hmm. Verdi Lambert was the excellent... Uh, uh, super producer who did the first two seasons. Then she left to let. Then they let another rookie producer come in, uh, John Wiles. He was his first time producing. And I think his last actually. He he only lasted the job for six months because of all the pressures and how he was not getting along with William Hartnell at all. And in fact, he left. Uh, um, that's a story I should get into too. But just to get back to this, um, Wiles wanted to make the, the show more. Gritty and I get the same, uh, more adult or realistic, and so you get these harder SF stories. And one of the things he does is kill companions in the Dodge Master Plan twice, or at least characters we are we are led to believe are going to be the companions, and they die. And so he's, that's him trying to inject some real jeopardy into the show, also trying to solve the problem that they had written themselves into. Remember, this is the days where all scripting is done by typewriter and has to be, you can't just easily mm-hmm. cut and paste paragraphs uh, like you can now. So they'd already written a few scripts with Katarina, the historical companion, and they're realizing, oh, she doesn't even know how to key in a door works. Right. <laughs> uh, we, we can't keep yeah. going on with this character in these science fiction stories. We got, we got uh, Killer, there we go. And then they do the same with, Sarah Kingdom, though, was done more for dramatic purposes, I think. Yeah, yeah she was never yeah. intended no, to be a, a full right. companion. But, but yeah, I always say John Wiles was Philip Hinchcliffe before we had Philip Hinchcliffe, because it was the same sort of idea of wanting to take the story in a darker direction and take the series in a darker direction. Unfortunately, he didn't get along with William Hartnell, and that's why his yeah. tenure was so short, is because he wanted to replace William Hartnell and this is when Hartnell did not want to go yet. Right. And this he was, went to the top of the BBC and said, no, you know, this guy needs to go or I'm going. This, that, the uh, Celestial so Toymaker is the story where we, we could have had a very different way of changing the Doctor. You know, if anyone knows this story. Yeah. Then. The, the, the Celestial Toymaker, it's, it's like they meet, they meet a godlike alien who just likes to play games. He's kind of like Q on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, he made, in the first episode, the Doctor... Uh, gets turned invisible and intangible. And he's given one hand to play this game with, 
And for the middle two episodes, all you hear of Hartnell is his voice occasionally as he's playing and William Hartnell's off on vacation. And the original uh, John Wiles idea was that in episode four, when the Doctor appears again, it would be a different actor. Right. The toy manager changed it. Yeah, because that, that was his idea for how to replace Hartnell. But he would still act like the, fir mm -hmm. the first Doctor we all knew. Yeah, because at that time they really weren't sure how the show would go ahead without William Hartnell. Right, I mean, right. That's one of the reasons why um, in the massacre Stephen has such a large role because mm -hmm. they were trying out to see if he could he could be the lead of the series. I mean, if you notice in the Celestial Toymaker, Stephen actually takes off the TARDIS controls, which the Doctor rarely lets other companions yeah. do. Subsequently, because at the time. They weren't sure if, if the Doctor would even be a continuing character. If William, they didn't before they came up with Regeneration, they're like, well, if Hartnell leaves, what do we do? So they were actually trying. Right. Could Stephen be the lead of the series and fly the TARDIS? And you know, it, it could very well have been the Doctor would have been a one-off character, and we'd have had other people in the TARDIS. So I mean, it it it, it could have gone. Well, anyway, any Wiles way at was that time. Wiles was told, no, you can't do that. Yeah. And he basically said, if it's either I go or he goes, and they say, bye, John. <laughs> yeah. right. And Donald Tosh, the story editor, leaves yeah. with him, and they bring in a veteran producer who can better. Handle Hartnell, yeah. Innes Lloyd, but quickly Innes Lloyd realizes, oh, actually, that young guy had a point. <laughs> and we are, we've come up to the, yeah, we should be wrapping up. Or any final questions for us about the William Hartnell era, about how to see it, that kind of thing, or what you should start start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Next one. Next is All right. Yeah, I think the Trump people are coming yeah. in next. So a lot of you probably want to stay for this one. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the 42 cast, copyright 2021. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42 cast is a proud member of the ESO network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.